What we like to do in investment real estate is to do a cost segregation study. Why that's important is because the government now allows, and it's slowly being phased out, you to take the depreciation that normally you'd have to spread across five years for let's say the carpet, and you can accelerate it into year one. So the first year you buy the property, all that carpet and the value of it can be depreciated year one. And you can go 10 years and it could be the kitchen cabinets. I don't know if it's 10 years of the kitchen cabinets, but you get my point. You can take these things that normally have to be spread out over five, 10, 15 plus years, and you can pull them down to year one. And you can get that big depreciation loss on taxes year one. Listen, too many of us spend most of our waking hours working hard for our money and have little time left to figure out how to make our money work hard for us. We default to handing our savings off to advisors who make their livings off our assets while we wait until 65 to enjoy any of the benefits. The problem is we need a quick way to gain the knowledge to take back the reins on managing our money while avoiding the misleading media or just straight bad advice. My goal is to give you all my knowledge, full-time research, and connections in a distilled version so we all can make our money work harder for us. This show focuses on ways you can take back control and intelligently invest outside the stock market to benefit your life today as well as into retirement. I'm Brian O'Neill, and welcome to the Harder Working Money Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Harder Working Money Podcast. So I have no guests this week, so it's just going to be me speaking. I'm actually going to start doing these podcasts as well where I cover different topics of things that I'm interested in. And, you know, I'd spend a lot of time researching and trying to get educated on for my own life and share it with you. So I figured why not tackle the uh, probably the hardest topic to talk about is uh, taxes. So I'll admit I have some cheat sheets here. I had to put some notes down to uh, keep it straight in my head because even though I I am interested in this stuff. I don't do it every single day, so I will need a few notes. So if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see me looking down a little bit just to remind myself of some of the percentages and different aspects of it. And of course, I'll do the disclaimer right now. I'm not a tax professional. It's not tax advice. I'm just sharing what I know and I've started to learn and use in my life. And I will definitely try not to make any mistakes on the uh, information I share here, but make sure that you just use this as informational purposes only, just sort of like my opinion of what I do and consult with CPAs and tax professionals to uh, work out all the nitty gritty. So I'll do some generalizations here. I'm not gonna get down to the exact percentages and there's always caveats to all the things that I talk about, especially with taxes, because you know taxes are, are not simple. The tax code is thousands of pages, so you definitely have to make sure that you don't just take something you find on the internet and apply that. Okay, so let's talk about taxes and why is it important. So taxes are most likely the biggest expense in your life if you are a business owner or a professional, you're making a six-figure income or higher, you're gonna be spending more on taxes than your mortgage and other things like that. But what's funny is most people I've found will spend more time researching their next car or trying to save $30 on their utility bill than they will getting knowledgeable in current tax changes and different strategies that you can use regarding your taxes and your income. So I think it's really important that if you don't spend the time doing it yourself, which you probably shouldn't do, you should find a professional that can. And at the end of this video, I wanna talk about 
how to distinguish good CPAs from average CPAs, from basic and bad CPAs, basically. But first, we just need to get into certain background that goes into taxes and ways that you can manipulate the way that you pay taxes and the amounts that you you pay on different types of income. And taxes also, you got to remember that they're not just a loan. They're really part of estate planning and business planning. If you're a business owner, the way you structure your company, the way you buy assets, the way you set up your estate for your personal income and investments, those play hand in hand in your taxes. There's not some magic way that you can just miraculously, you know, have less taxes without also incorporating your business structure and other ways you have your estate set up. So you really have to have a, a holistic view of tax planning when it comes to being able to do some of these things. Before we talk about taxes, let's talk about different income. So if anyone's read the Robert Kiyosaki book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he has the cash flow quadrant. And he basically breaks different people's income, and the jobs they hold into what he calls the cash flow quadrant. So you have the employee, the self-employed, the business owner, and the investor. So the employee is probably the hardest position to reduce taxes because they basically just have a W-2 income. They don't have a business. They don't have other ways to manage the income that they have. And if you're in the upper tax brackets, you're close to 40%. So think about 40% for employees. Now, self-employed is even worse. It can be 57.3% if you do the math on it. And the reason is, is because they're basically paying employee taxes. Plus, because they're self-employed, they're also paying the employer side of the taxes. So being self-employed will put you in the highest tax bracket, basically. Now, Robert Kiyosaki and many tax advisors will say you really wanna get as much as your income into the B and I quadrants, the business owner quadrant and the investor quadrant. So business owner, you can kind of anticipate about the 20% tax rate. And investors, done right and in the right type of assets, you can expect about a 0% overtime tax rate. So we want to try to get as much of our income in the B and the I as a business owner and an investor. And that's something you should be thinking about, especially if you're currently self-employed or as an employee, is how you can start readjusting your career or work life to get some of that income into the business owner investor category, because that's really where you can do your best tax mitigation. So we've talked about that. Now let's talk about types of income. So not where they're coming from and how you're employed, but the type of income. So you have three types of income. You have active income, passive, and capital gains or portfolio, depending on who you talk to, they'll call it capital gains or portfolio. So active income is what you actively do for a job day to day and how you make money. You can do it through your company, you can do it through a W-2, but this is how you spend your time and what your, your main job and career is. It's the easiest way to think about it. You're actively involved in creating this income. Now, passive income is income that you're not actively involved in producing. So if you go invest in a, a friend's company and it kicks off and you own, let's say, 20% of it and it starts kicking off income, that would be passive income. If you invest in a syndication as a limited partner, that's passive income. You're not actively involved in that business. Now, let's not confuse, and this is what I had when I first started looking into this a few years ago. Passive income does not mean income from stocks. So if you buy and sell stocks, that income is not passive. It's gonna fall into capital gains and portfolio, which is a different category. And the reason we're going over all these 
is because when we start talking about how to reduce taxes, it's gonna start falling in these three different types of income, and we'll get into that in just a bit. Capital gains portfolio is profit earned on the sale of an asset. So it can be a piece of property, or a car, or a business, or you know stocks or shares in a company. It can be real estate. So think of it as profit earned on the sale of an actual asset. So the one last thing we need to understand before we talk about ways to save on taxes is what is depreciation? And a lot of us that own businesses or real estate have seen depreciation. We know that it's something our CPA, our tax professional calculates towards the end of the year and it comes off some of our income. But depreciation is basically the IRS's way of showing that your property or asset is wearing out. So it doesn't mean that in real life that the value isn't going up, but the usable life for say the, the carpet in the new rental unit you have, you know it's gonna wear out and you're gonna have to replace it and you get to then note that through depreciation on your taxes. Now there's straight line depreciation, which for real estate, uh, residential real estate, says that the building and the structure and the things in it are gonna last 27.5 years and you can take a straight line depreciation every year you know, one 27.5 of the value of that real estate can get taken off. But no one really uses that. A lot of them will use the modified accelerated cost recovery system. Crazy long word basically is the IRS's tables and methods for different types of assets, whether it's cars or equipment for a business or for real estate, it'll be the, the buildings and the landscaping. What the, uh, the curve is basically for the value as that thing depreciates. What we like to do in investment real estate is to do a cost segregation study. So what that basically does, it says instead of using the charts and the figures and the numbers that the IRS offers in their standard method, is a professional comes through and they go through and they look at what is the value of the light fixtures? What's the value of the carpet? How about the paint? How about the landscaping? They chop up the value of your property that you paid for it into all these little segments and they know how quickly each one of those depreciates and it's called a cost segregation study. And basically what that does is it breaks it down into instead of using the straight line depreciation of 27.5 years or the modified system, accelerated cost recovery system the IRS has, it gets you a very granular view of this is how much of your property will depreciate in five years, 10 years, 15 years, and then the full length. And why that's important is because the government now allows, and it's slowly being phased out, you to take the depreciation that normally you'd have to spread across five years for let's say the carpet, and you can accelerate it into year one. So the first year you buy the property, all that carpet and the value of it can be depreciated year one. And you can go 10 years and it could be the kitchen cabinets. I don't know if it's 10 years of the kitchen cabinets, but you get my point. You can take these things that normally have to be spread out over five, 10, 15 plus years, and you can pull them down to year one. And you can get that big depreciation loss on taxes year one. So this bonus depreciation that's allowing you to pull forward these items into year one is slowly phasing out. So it started a number of years ago and it gave you 100%. And now in 2023, you can take 80% of the value of those items that you can pull forward. In 2024, it goes to 60% and then every year after that 40, 20, and then it phases off. And it's unclear if Congress is gonna renew this or put it back in place. So right now we're running at 80%. So how does this benefit? So what's the benefit of being able to take depreciation early on as opposed to have to spread it over time. 
So here's a good example. And these numbers are gonna be rough and it'll, be, it'll depend on properties and people's tax rates, but you get the general idea. So let's say you made a $150,000 investment in let's say a apartment complex syndication. So they're gonna do a cost segregation study on that apartment complex. And depending on how the deal is set up, they're gonna pass all that depreciation down to you based on your investment. So let's say you put $150,000 investment in and your K-1, which is a document that you'll receive from that syndication, shows $100,000 loss. Your chunk of the depreciation off that property after cost segregation is $100,000. So you get to take that off of your income. And we'll talk later, there's caveats to this. We'll cover this, but for right now, let's assume that you can take that $100,000 off your income. And let's say you're in the top tax bracket at 39.6%. So that's a $40,000 tax savings that you're not gonna pay to the IRS. So you have $40,000 that was gonna leave your bank account and pay and have to go to the IRS and now it doesn't. So let's say you take that $40,000 and instead of giving it to the IRS, you go and invest it. You invest that $40,000 for five years. So if you do it in a syndication, or many real estate investments, the goal is to be able to double your money in five years. So that $40,000 has turned into $80,000. Now you have to pay some taxes on that, that increase after five years. So let's say that $80,000 goes down to somewhere around $68,000 after tax. So you basically didn't give the IRS $40,000, and now you have $68,000 five years later after taxes sitting in your bank account. Now, that original $150,000 original investment has now turned to $300,000 after five years because it's doubled and real estate, that's sort of what we're aiming for. Now, you're gonna have to pay capital gains tax on it. And there's also this thing called depreciation recapture, which we're not really gonna go super into, but basically what it says is that if you use depreciation in the beginning on this property, now that when you go to sell it, they wanna recapture that depreciation and they're gonna tax you on. They're gonna tax you on, on 25%. So all said and done, let's say you have around $45,000, $47,000 in taxes off that $300,000. Well, you owe $47,000 on that investment in taxes, but remember that $40,000 that turned into $68,000 that you invested in instead of giving the IRS? Well, that money you can basically use, think of it, to pay the taxes on your originally $150,000 investment. So that's how when people say that they use depreciation to basically get tax-free, it's because they're using the money that, that they got in year one, and instead of giving it to the IRS, they go and invest it, they let it grow. And it grows for five years, and after five years, you take the growth of that money, and even after taxes on that money, you can basically pay for the taxes on the increase in your original investment. And that's how you basically are using the government's money or the money that you would have given to the IRS to grow it and then pay them the taxes later on with the growth on that money. So it's the myth that you're never paying taxes. It's that you're using the money that you're not paying in taxes to grow it to then later pay taxes. Now, of course, if you reinvested that $300,000 into another deal that got more depreciation and then you keep the cycle going, which is what a lot of people do, you keep kicking the can down the road and you keep reinvesting that money you're not paying in taxes and keep growing it and growing it. At some point, you will end up paying taxes, but the goal is to pay the taxes with money that you grew and earned with the taxes you didn't pay earlier on. So there's a huge caveat to this and you'll see a lot of 
talking heads out there with real estate, talking about how real estate pays no taxes and appreciation is the way you do it. So remember how we talked about there's active income, passive income, and portfolio or capital gains income. So the IRS basically says that if you have a loss in one column, active income or, or passive income, you can't use it in the other bucket. So if I have this big K-1 depreciation loss in a passive investment, I can't use that loss to offset positive income in, let's say, my active income. Let's say I have a W-2 job where I made $100,000 and I have a K-1 investment that shows a lot of depreciation loss of $100,000. You can't wash those together because they're in separate buckets. Now, many times when you hear people saying that you can, there are exceptions. There's the real estate professional, which is the big one that everyone likes to use. And a real estate professional basically says, it's an IRS designation that basically says that you are a real estate professional and you earn the majority and the most of your income in the real estate acquisition, improvement. There's a whole list of you know verbs that you have to hit and you have to do at least one of those. And if, you, if that is your career and that's your primary main source of income, you spend a, at least 750 hours a year doing it or 500 hours a year if you're doing short-term rentals like an Airbnb, you get this designation of real estate professional. And what it, the biggest thing it allows you to do, it allows you to take losses, let's say that K-1 loss that's in your passive bucket and use it to offset gains in your active income. You obviously can tell it's an awesome, awesome way to save on taxes because now you can blend these gains and losses depending on what bucket they're in together. And it allows you to then do investments where you get nice losses, you can have income in your active income, and they will basically wash each other out. Now, if you can't get real estate professional status, it doesn't mean that those K-1 losses from depreciation in your passive bucket aren't useful. So you're gonna get cash flow off of these investments at year two, three, four, five, you can use your passive losses. They'll carry forward after year one into year two and all the way down. So when you do start getting income in your passive bucket, you can use these you know, accumulated losses to offset it and not pay taxes. Also, when, you go, when the property ends up being sold, consult your CPA, it releases some of these losses and they can flow into the capital gains bucket if the property is sold on that year. The point is they don't get wasted they just can't be used to offset active income like your W-2 or income from, from a, a salary you get. So what are some ways around that? So biggest one is it says that a real estate professional in a couple's environment. So let's say that you're a dentist or a doctor or you're a tech executive or you're, you, know, you have a W-2 job and you make a lot of income. Well, what you can do is you can have your spouse become the real estate professional status. So the easiest one is Airbnbs because you only need 500 hours and it's pretty easy to get to 500 hours, which is basically a 25%. You know, there's 2000 hours in a standard nine to five. So 500 hours is a quarter, a quarter job. You can get real estate professional status using short-term rentals, which is only 500 hours or have them become a real estate agent or start managing a few small rental properties you have and get up to that 750 hours. And then your spouse, if they can get real estate professional status, it can flow over to your W-2 income as the other partner. So that's a super common way you'll see people do it if they wanna maintain their W-2 job is have their spouse work on getting that real estate professional status. 
Another way to do it, and I don't know all the de details, but I just went to a conference with Tom Wheelwright, and he's the CPA tax professional for Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Poor Dad series. And he was saying that if you own a business, that it can be placed in a certain type of trust where the income then coming out of that trust to you is considered passive. And it's another way to work around. That's more advanced strategy. I don't have all the details on that. That's something I'm actually going to look into fairly soon. But that's something else a more advanced CPA and tax planner could talk to you about with the advantages and disadvantages of that. But he said pretty unequivocally, if you have a business and you need to get it from active income to passive income, totally a way to do that. If you have a W-2, real estate professional status for your spouse is probably the best way. There are other investments we'll talk about here in just a minute that don't have that limitation where you can get a loss against your active income. Okay, I had to jump in here real quick. I hope you're loving this interview as much as I am. To get all our content and stay up to date, make sure you follow us on social media under Brian underscore O'Neill underscore investor on Facebook and Instagram. And also remember to follow this podcast if you're listening to an audio. And if you're on YouTube watching the video, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Okay, back to the interview. Okay, so let's stop talking about real estate for a minute. Let's start talking about oil and gas investments. So why oil and gas investments? Now, this isn't investing in Shell or Chevron or a mutual fund. This is investing directly into operators that drill for oil and gas. So how does it work? It's basically a fund or a group, like a syndication, that you buy shares into and you're a part owner in the fund of that year that goes out and buys properties and oil wells and works with operators to drill those wells. So oil demand is still forecast to increase throughout the world, regardless of renewables coming online and regardless of a recession. If a recession did hit, the forecasts still show we're gonna have demand increase. There just won't be as much demand increase. There's not going to be a drop in demand. That's a big thing to recognize because when you watch the news, you talk about oil prices and oil supply, but really you wanna look at the demand. Is the demand going up? And the demand is going to go up over the next 5, 10, 15 years, regardless of everything else that's going on. And investments in oil and gas exploration, especially by the big players, has been cut significantly, partially because of pressures from ESG. So investing in these mid-sized and smaller players who are boots on the ground, buying property, buying oil wells, drilling them, producing it, and sending it to market is a great place to invest money. So what's different about oil and gas investments? Well, the U.S. government wants oil and gas exploration. Regardless of what you see in the news, the tax code has very unique features in it for oil and gas exploration. So there's this thing in oil and gas exploration and drilling called intangible drilling costs. That's basically everything but the actual drilling equipment, the pipes, the sand, all the work that goes in to drilling, except for the actual drilling equipment. And it, it makes up 60 to 80% of the total cost to drill a well. And the US government, the tax code, says that you can depreciate that 100% year one. And that is not like the real estate cost segregation accelerated depreciation we talked about. That is hard-coded into the tax code and isn't expiring. So how does that benefit us as an investor? Well, what you can do is that invested properly, you can be you can have a working interest in these companies. So basically you're, you get placed as an investor general partner year one, which makes you actively involved in the business according to the IRS. And what that does is when those 
intangible drilling cost depreciation items come through year one. They flow through to you, but because you have an active interest in this drilling entity, it comes through as an active loss, which means, remember that those three buckets we talked about, active income, passive income, and capital gains or portfolio income, it comes through in the active bucket which is great because you can offset W-2. If it all gets used up there, I believe in many cases it can flow down to capital gains. It's the best place to get a loss to come through. So after year one, what happens is they move you from a general active general partner down to a limited partner to reduce your exposure to liability and things like that. But you still get that active loss. One thing to remember, however, is that once you start making money back from this oil and gas investment, because you started it as an active interest, that will be active income coming to you. So you have to remember that in the future, that when that money comes back, it's gonna start coming back as an active income. But oil and gas, I would say, is probably the best way if you can't get real estate professional status and you don't have a lot of other passive income, you really need active losses. Oil and gas is a great way to do that, done correctly. Now, when you do these funds and you go with these these partners, you have to make sure they have different classes of shares and you need the one that gives you an active interest so that you can get the active losses. But for example, I'm looking at my 2021 K1, I put $100,000 into one of these investments and I have a $98,000 active loss that came through on my K1 for my 2021 taxes. And I've done it in 2022 as well and it absolutely works. If your CPA or tax professional doesn't know what it is or says it's, you know, something fringe, it is not. So I went and saw Tom Wheelwright recently, and he's the CPA and tax advisor for Robert Kiyosaki in the Rich Dad, Poor Dad series. He had a very good analogy to when someone says, is that an aggressive CPA or is that a, a very non-aggressive CPA? And he basically drew a chart, which was the knowledge of your CPA. So if your CPA only knows a few hundred pages of the 6,000 pages of tax code, anything he does outside of that knowledge base to him or her will appear and feel aggressive because they're not familiar working in those areas of the tax code. However, if your CPA or tax professional knows 80% of those 6,000 pages, working within that 80%, they feel pretty confident and conservative about what they're doing. So. That was a really good analogy to find someone that feels conservative doing complicated and in-depth tax analysis. And we'll talk about that in this video of how to find those CPAs and flesh them out. So if you're interested in what company I use to invest in oil and gas, go ahead and email me at brian at Passive Capital Partners, or you can DM me on any of the social media channels. I'm happy to tell you. I don't want to throw it out here just because I don't want to put it as an endorsement but I definitely have someone I've worked with for a few years. I don't get any benefit from this at all. I've had a good business relationship with them for my investments, and so far they're the best ones I've been able to find for consistency. Talk, I've talked recently to someone that used to work for operators in the, as an analyst in the oil and gas industry in these operators that are like you know boots on the ground, and they pointed out sort of a long track record of the original people is something good to look for because sometimes there's some shady shady business that people are sort of fly-by-night type operations in oil and gas, and you really want to make sure you find a company that's been around a while, is operating correctly, has the investor's interests in mind. That's a big thing. So I found one that I believe is good. I'm happy to share it with you if you're interested in it. So another thing I learned at this conference, 
and previously from another CPA friend was how to pay your kids through your business. And it's not what you probably have heard on the internet before, which is pay your kids through the business, give them a paycheck, and as long as you keep it below a certain number, it's basically tax-free. That is sort of true, but it, there's a caveat to that. So if you have a business as an S-corp or a C-corp, and you go to pay your kids, so let's back up real quick. You can pay your kids $12,950 in 2022, and basically they're not gonna pay much taxes on it. However, you have to remember that when you pay through your business, that even though your kids most likely are gonna be exempt from FICA and Medicare, your business is still going to have to pay that FICA and Medicare. You're also gonna have unemployment insurance that is gonna show up. Your unemployment insurance provider is gonna, is gonna see that, that salary and that money going to your kids and they're gonna charge you unemployment insurance on it. Your workers' comp is also gonna put workers' comp on top of it and you're gonna pay those fees. So there's a way around it, which was really interesting, which is you create what's called a family management company. And it's not complex. It's basically just a sole proprietorship and it's taxed as a disregarded entity. And what it does is it uses basically a loophole that says if you're a sole proprietor, you don't have to withhold FICA and Medicare from paychecks to your kids. So what it does is it basically allows you to save 7.65% plus unemployment insurance fees plus any workers' comp and other expenses that are tied to payroll if you basically pay your kids through a sole proprietorship that's just a disregard entity. It just sits on the side, it still flows through. And the way you do it is you set them up as basically working for that sole proprietorship. You have a contract between the sole proprietorship and your actual business. Your actual business will pay the sole proprietorship as an expense for your kids' salaries. And then their kids' salaries and wages will be paid by that, that sole proprietorship. So you can pay your kids $12,950 in 2022. It's a great way to shave off some income and send it to your kids, basically. One thing to make sure is that you pay them a reasonable rate for the work that they're doing. Obviously, if a two-year-old, you can't be paying them $12,950 unless they're showing up in your social media and other marketing pieces. So be realistic, have a little contract, talk to your CPA, what, what documentation and what they think is realistic to pay the kids. But if you own a construction company, there's no reason they can't clean up job sites, there's no reason they can't clean an office. If they're a little older, have them do social media posts, anything you can find them to do and pay them a good rate. Now, your kids can also contribute 6K to a Roth IRA out of that money. So that's a great way to build a Roth IRA, basically with tax-free money going through your kids' social security number, basically. So this also falls outside the annual gift tax because you gift $16,000 in 2022. It falls outside that. So it doesn't exclude you from doing gifting as well. And like I said, pay them a reasonable wage, document their hours, have a contract, instead of a contract between your business and this sole proprietorship. So if you think about that, if you have three kids and you paid them each $12,950, the tax savings alone by doing one of these family management companies is $4,000 in taxes. And I estimated expenses a little bit of what workers comp and things like that. So super easy entity, doesn't complicate your taxes that much little bit of paperwork and you're gonna save $4,000 a year on taxes doing that. So let's talk about CPAs. So, ah, uh, CPAs. Okay, CPAs, 
basic CPAs, the CPAs that work within that 20% of the tax code, and they're very comfortable there. And that's where a lot of people have a W-2, don't have a lot of investments, don't have high income, sort of operate. And unfortunately, us as business owners, you start small and you've started to grow or you're professional, now you're making a good amount of money. We stick with our CPAs too long. And many times we outgrow our CPAs and we don't realize it because we don't spend enough time searching around, seeing and learning how to analyze, is my CPA a good fit for me? You shouldn't have to learn the ins and outs of even the things I just talked about and these methods to save on taxes. This is really your CPA's job to advise you. So if, you're, if your CPA is basically sitting and you kick them a question and they give you an answer, you give them a question, you get an answer, or you give them your tax documents and you get answers back, that is not a good CPA if you're making six figures and you wanna save on taxes. You need a CPA that has a much more holistic approach that really looks at your entities, is advising you like, hey, you may wanna get into real estate or maybe you should look into these investments. Or, hey, if you do this and this with your kids, we can save you $4,000. They need to be really putting a plan together. And when I've gone out looking for different CPAs, the more holistic ones will typically have an upfront fee to bring you on board. So they're gonna spend a lot of time going through your history and trying to figure out how do we get you in three, five, seven years where we wanna get with your investments and your ability to save on taxes and make you efficient. And if they're not doing that and they're mostly just answering questions, you're going to them saying, hey, I wanna do X and they go, okay, that's fine. You know, Do X, Y, and Z and this is what your taxes will be. That's not a great CPA. A good CPA I found costs more. If you're spending a thousand or 1500 bucks on your CPA and you haven't done a lot of planning or you're not talking to them a lot and they're not reaching out to you, really trying to set up your structure and advise on investments and different ways that you can be investing your money to avoid taxes or to utilize tax strategies, they're probably not charging you enough to do that because that takes time and they have to have less clients and to do that, they have to charge more. So watch out going for, you know, trying to save a few hundred dollars on your CPA or even trying to save, you know, some of these CPA firms that really are aggressively planning people's financial lives, they're going to charge five, maybe even $10,000 up front to bring you on as a client and to put a plan together and to execute that plan over a number of years. And if you think about it, if you're making two, three, four, five hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand, hundred, a million dollars, you should be spending $10,000 planning your taxes, considering it's the most expensive thing that you're dealing with. Just find the right CPA firm. So one thing to realize is that when you find one of these CPA firms, you're likely going to have to change your investment strategy, maybe your business structure, maybe even how you look at how you're making income, investing, and running your life. They're not just going to step in with, hey, I have a W-2 and I invest in stocks. How do I pay no taxes? That's not how it works. You're going to have to do things and adjust how you do things in your life in order for them to be able to implement the plan to really get your taxes down and more efficient. Now, if you're a doctor or a dentist or whatever profession you're in, there absolutely is going to be CPA firms that focus specifically on your type of careers and the type of investments and money management that you do for your type of career for a firm that's big enough to really have a deep enough bench that knows who their client they're working with and they can match them up 
with CPAs and advisors that fit them. For example, if you're making a few hundred thousand dollars, you're just getting the real estate, maybe you have one company, that's a different CPA than someone that has $50 million in investments and has six companies, all these different sources of income. That's a totally different person. And they're not gonna be the same person that helps the guy who has a W-2 job and just puts money in a 401k. You need to find the ones that have focused on your niche and your niche specifically. That would be my biggest advice is that your CPA, and I used to be very anti-CPA because I only knew average to mediocre ones. So I used a tax preparer, a tax professional. That's all, he's an enrolled agent and he did businesses and small businesses. And I went and used my friend's CPA one year and it cost me two to three times as much and they filled out the forms on paper with a pen. They didn't use a computer. And I was like, I do not understand why anyone would pay more for CPAs if this is what you get. And it turns out there's a whole different level of CPAs out there. Just as you go to a, you know, a clinic doctor or you go to a, a specialist in a tier one hospital, they're gonna cost more, but they're playing in a completely different ball game. And I would advise you to definitely look out there. I like ProVision or WealthAbility, but there's a bunch more out there as well. I would say get them big enough to where they have research teams and they really can stay up to date on those 6,000 plus pages of tax code because your average, you know, one, two, three or four CPA firm isn't going to be able to do that. They're going to spend as little time as they can going to training because they have a lot of clients and they have to spend a lot of time processing those clients. And I would suggest if you're making a few hundred grand a year, find a CPA who isn't run of the mill and really specializes in your niche. So I'll do more on these different topics. Hopefully that wasn't too boring. Cycle back around on it. I'll try to post more on it as well. I'm actually gonna get a cool dude in here. I won't mention his name yet because he's not confirmed, but he'll be explaining this so much better than me. He's a tax advisor and he specifically focuses on all these items I just spoke about. But I just want to drop this because I've had so many people asking about some of these topics and I've just alluded to them in podcast interviews. So thanks for tuning in. Please, only thing I ask for the time we put in and you know, it costs one to $2,000 a month to run this podcast. If you can just subscribe to it, put a review, Apple Podcast, just click the button, give me a five star. I totally appreciate it. It helps boost the podcast up. I get better guests on and I get farther reach, which is the purpose of getting this message out here. So that's all I need from you. I'll see you guys next week.